I'm Tiziana Deering, in for Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Joan Biskupic has observed and written about the U.S. Supreme Court for three decades. She is CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst and the author of Profiles of Four Justices. For her latest book, she has turned her attention to the court itself, and the title sums it up, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Joan Biskupic, welcome to On Point. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you, Tiziana. It's great to have you, Joan. The book, the book really couldn't be more timely, really, given recent news of the court. And I thought as a way to dive into what you found in your deep research for the book, we should set it up with these two major sort of Supreme Court happenings or stories that are going on. So let's start there. I'm thinking about abortion medication and Clarence Thomas. I thought we could start with abortion medication, mifepristone. Maybe we go back to April 7th, the Texas judge, and maybe you can help walk our listeners through where we are and what's been happening starting in Texas. Of course. Let's just remind people what the Supreme Court itself did that opened the door to what Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas did. Back in June, the justices rolled back nearly 50 years of constitutional abortion rights, reversing the 1973 landmark Roe v. Wade. It said, importantly, first of all, that there is no longer a constitutional right for a woman to end a pregnancy, but at the same time, it stressed that it was returning the issue to the states, and key Justice Brett Kavanaugh who was one of the five in the majority, wrote separately to say, we are not outlawing abortion nationwide. So since then, you have all sorts of action by anti-abortion opponents trying to push even further uh, to restrict abortion rights. And that led us to the case uh, in uh, the Northern District of of Texas, in which a group of anti-abortion physicians and medical groups sued the Food and Drug Administration for its approval of the abortion medication drug, mifepristone, as you mentioned, Tiziana, and tried to get Judge Kaczmarek to completely roll back that approval, which he did. They found exactly the right judge. Uh, They essentially looked specifically for uh, a judge like Matthew Kaczmarek, a 2000 appointee of Donald Trump, and they got a sweeping ruling from him in which he acknowledged he was second-guessing what the FDA had done in its approval that dated all the way back to 2000. So we get that ruling in early April, as you say. Then a regional appellate court, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, looks at Judge Kaczmarek's decision and says, It disagrees with the lower court judge on his um, nullification of the year 2000 approval. From the FDA. Correct. But it allows part of his order that would uh, really restrict the access, uh, access to the judge to go into effect, to the drug to go into effect. And just so our listeners know what we're talking about, uh, it would, the order that the Fifth Circuit uh, imposed, which is, you know, right now in play, it decreased the window of availability for the drug from 10 weeks of pregnancy to just seven weeks of pregnancy. Uh, it went back to requiring three in-person visits to obtain the drug. And it also said that uh, a re- 
uh, a loosening of access that the FDA had put into effect in recent years, allowing uh, for women to obtain the drug by mail after you know consultations with um, medical personnel, that it couldn't be by mail. It would have to be in person. So, Joan, I'm so going to pause now, you there. I'm going to pause you there for three touch points. So give me just a second. First, I want to flag your note about Kavanaugh, because that's going to come back when we start talking about what you've laid out in the book. And your note about Kavanaugh, again, was that he said, hey, we are sending this back to the states. This is not nationwide. Second, I'm going to flag that you noted that the, the judge in Texas was appointed by Donald Trump, because that's going to be important as we dive into your book later, too. And and the third thing is that the federal, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the reason for this partial thing was because the statute of limitations had expired on FDA approval back in 2023 years ago, but they allowed these rollbacks of more recent choices by the FDA because they were more recent. Okay. And, and just to note that there was another federal judge in Washington on the same day as Texas who provided protections for 18 states who had sued, saying, no, 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 the FDA has to hold in place for those states. Okay. So now it goes to the Supreme Court on the 14th and tell us what happens. Okay. So uh, I'm, gl I'm glad you laid that out and you laid it out very clearly. And what the Biden administration has said it has caused those two lower court decisions have caused such confusion because suddenly uh, the, the most recent uh, regulations involving the drug, you know, go back to 2016 up to, you know, 2019, 2021. Those are ones that, you know, have women and their physicians have gotten accustomed to. And the most recent filing from the Biden administration asking the Supreme Court to postpone or stay is the legal term, stay the effect of the Fifth Circuit ruling. Part of their argument is it would cause such havoc in the field if you don't do that. And not just for abortion medication, but for all existing and new drugs, just because these lower court judges have been allowed to, or they have taken it upon themselves to essentially second guess the FDA. So what happened yesterday, as I know you know, Tiziana, <laughs> but uh, just to bring all our listeners up to date, the justices had said, or actually it was Justice Samuel Alito, who happens to be the justice who uh, handles emergency requests related to the Fifth Circuit down in the Southwest, also, by the way, he had written the Dobbs abortion opinion uh, last June. He had given, he had told everyone that the court would decide by 11.59 p.m. yesterday, midday yesterday, it was obviously clear to the justices that they had no consensus and they had to buy two more days. So now what we're all waiting for is an order by 11.59 Friday night uh, to see what they are going to do with these lower court orders, whether they will just suspend them and let the merits of this controversy play out, or if they will let the Fifth Circuit order go into place, or even the, the original Judge Kismeric order go into place, which would as you've nicely said, you know, we'll either roll back the entire FDA auth authorization from uh, the year 2000 or 
allow the basic authorization to stay, but with these new restrictions so we added. So we can bite our nails for the next, you know, less than 48 hours now when they, when they extended it. You know, yesterday we were looking at another 48 hours. And really, there is a wide swath of possible outcomes by midnight Friday night of, of what could practically happen with mifepristone in the United States of America as of 12.01 on Saturday morning. That's absolutely right. The most clear-cut action they could take would be to outright deny the request from the Biden administration and the drug manufacturer, Danko, and allow the lower court orders to take effect. That would be clear-cut. But as I said, uh, the the Biden administration has made a very good case for the, the kind of havoc that would wreak. Or they could just grant uh, the stay and allow the Fifth Circuit, which has already scheduled a hearing on the merits of this issue over the FDA approval for May 17th. Let that play out. Or maybe even say the justices would say, we will hear this case. We'll we ourselves. ourselves will hold oral arguments. But then there, there are lots of variations in between, which could be exactly what's tying the nine justices up in knots right now. So, Joan, I'm going to take a pivot now, and it's going to feel like a pivot because it's such a different subject, but it comes under the umbrella of this court and what you've led to in your book. So rapidly now, I want to move to Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. It's the other story in the news. I want to break this down quickly. It has to do with a set of ProPublica investigations coming out in April, kind of racked and stacked about failure to disclose a series of... Gifts, real estate transactions, participation in luxury vacations with a major uh, Republican billionaire and donor, Harlan Crow. Some cases that have the appearance of a, of a failure to avoid ethical conflicts, and in some cases potentially violating federal law around disclosure of gifts of transportation, of real estate transactions. In a nutshell, why is this problematic? Okay. Federal law requires most um, government officials, including the nine justices of the Supreme Court, to disclose certain income and gifts and, and, and travel. And Clarence Thomas did not report on his financial disclosure forms the trips that were paid for by Harlan Crow uh, on, his mega, on his mega yacht and private jet trips around the globe. So that was the first part that ProPublica made um, uh, released. Again, this has all just happened in April. Early April was its first story. And then its second story also involved a deal, uh, money that effectively Thomas and his family had been able to obtain from Harlan Crow through a real estate deal in which um, Harlan Crow bought uh, three properties that had been owned by the Thomas family down in Savannah, Georgia. And in both cases, um, some reporting would have been required. In the first, Clarence Thomas said that he had previously recorded certain travel and lodging that had been given to him by um, uh, outsiders, but he had been told by his colleagues, he put out a public statement to this effect, that his colleagues had told him that he did not have to report some of this private hospitality he had gotten. That's the, the phrase in the law, private hospitality. He said he realizes that there's been a clarification of the law and he will start to report that. He has not said anything publicly about the real estate deals, which I think most people, even his his fans, people who, you know, who are supporters of Clarence Thomas and how he rules and is, of him as a private individual believe that they pro those 
the real estate transaction should have been recorded too. And um, we have reported that he uh, will eventually amend his uh, disclosure forms on that. So, Joan, that is the perfect place for us to take a break, because when we come back, we're going to start folding this into the giant red flashing arrow in your book (laughs) to how we got here. So we're with Joan Biskupic, Senior Supreme Court Analyst at CNN. Stand by. We will come back for more. We'll dive into nine black robes inside the Supreme Court's drive to the right and its historic consequences. I'm Tiziana Deering, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. Our guest is Joan Biskupic, senior Supreme Court analyst for CNN and the author of four profiles of Supreme Court justices. Her latest book is called Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. And we have an excerpt at onpointradio.org. So, Joan, before the break, we kind of wrapped up these two big stories in the news right now. Miffa Pristone, we were waiting for the Supreme Court on that tomorrow. The ethics uh, controversies around Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. I want two more sentences from you on that, please. Uh, Sort of relating to credibility issues with the Supreme Court right now, which you kind of map out in your book. Give us just a couple sentences before we dive into a handful of key themes from your book that I want to hit on about why it might be particularly troubling to have these ethics questions about Associate Justice Thomas come up now. There's the broader issue of how accountable these justices are. They are all appointed for life. As the chief justice has said, they can only be removed through impeachment and conviction the way a president is. And they have essentially walled themselves off in terms of some of their rulings and also some of their off-bench behavior. These incidents with um, Justice Thomas just serve as a a reminder of the fact that they have no formal ethics code. And if outsiders have any kind of grievance against individual justices, either for non-disclosure or for any other conflicts of interest that might be affecting cases, there is really no way to bring those complaints and have them resolved. 
All right. So that kind of helps set us up. And, and we noted before you raised, you know, you raised a flag about uh, Trump judges appointed during his administration. You raised a flag about the attitude of a particular associate justice, Brett Kavanaugh, towards, um, you know, abortion rulings. I want to dive into that. And I'm going to flag for you the couple of themes that are most important, I think, for us to get to in our limited conversation, because we could teach a seminar on this book, right? But the couple that I want, I want to do the Trump effect. I want to talk about this triumvirate idea. Let's talk a little bit about Chief Justice Roberts. And let's talk about this supermajority. And we'll start with the Trump effect. And I'm going to, I'm going to play a little bit of sound here to kind of give a sense for the way that uh, Donald Trump began to affect our perceptions of courts in the Supreme Court. So after Brett Kavanaugh's highly contentious confirmation hearings, then President Trump invited Brett Kavanaugh, his family, and the other members of the Supreme Court to a symbolic swearing-in ceremony at the White House with all the other justices seated in the front row. I would like to begin tonight's proceeding differently than perhaps any other event of such magnitude. On behalf of our nation, I want to apologize to Brett and the entire Kavanaugh family for the terrible pain and suffering you have been forced to endure. Those who step forward to serve our country deserve a fair and dignified evaluation, not a campaign of political and personal destruction based on lies and deception. Now, Joan, you go on to talk about the discomfort that the, you know, the justices have in being present in that moment. And it's coming after you laying out the beginning of the approach of the Trump administration to the justices it wants to put on the courts. But also an argument you make about the impact that Donald Trump's approach to judges has on credibility of courts in our democracy. So let's hit that theme. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, first, just in that moment that you played, those justices were sitting in the seats there in the East Room of the White House feeling tricked. They had been persuaded to attend an event that they already had feared would be political because it was over at the White House. It was just in the wake of the contentious Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and they had resisted. And Chief Justice John Roberts had gotten some assurance from the White House Counsel's Office that, no, this will be a very serious, decorous you know, event, and listen to what happened. So they were very angry that they had, uh, as I said, felt, you know, really tricked into showing up. And of course, Donald Trump turns it into an even a more political event by bringing up uh, how he has cast Brett Kavanaugh as a victim of the of the hearings, certainly. But that was what Donald Trump was all about. He had such a personalized view of the judiciary. First of all, he acted as if anyone he put on the court was his in some way, his to control. He he used to say things like, you know, just wait till we get to the Supreme Court when he lost in the lower courts. And then he had that very uh, famous clash with the chief justice when a, a lower court judge ruled against one of his um, an asylum policy of the Trump administration. And Trump tried to uh, Uh, disparage the judge by referring to him as an Obama judge. And that was the only time during his whole four years that Chief Justice John Roberts was so prompted to speak out. And that's when he said in November of 2018, there are no Trump judges. There are no Obama judges. There are no 
Bush judges or Clinton judges. We just have judges trying to act fairly. Now, you can probably argue these days with that assertion, but it was what finally roused John Roberts to go public because he had by that point, really had enough of Donald Trump and his uh, trying to, you know, overly politicize the judiciary, at least in the public eye, having nothing to do with his his appointments. You know, I will note there was a, a an op-ed in the print version of the Boston Globe this morning from a retired federal judge named Nancy Gertner, who actually actually argued, no Obama judges, no Bush judges, no Clinton judges, but argued there are, in fact, Trump judges, um, which felt like part of the argument you were making. And I think it moves us into this triumvirate question. So this was interesting to me as somebody who's not a close court watcher. You you have a chapter that makes a case that Don McGahn, a guy named Leonard Leo, who's with the Federalist Society, and Senator Mitch McConnell formed a sort of triumvirate that created the nine black robes that we have with significant implications for this Supreme Court. Tell us about that a little bit, and, th- and then I have a couple of questions for you there. Sure. Uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with Mitch McConnell, the senior Republican senator who, in his first act toward all this, was the man who single-handedly made sure that the seat vacated by the death of Antonin Scalia in February of 2016 never got filled by President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland for that seat. He said it was too close to the election in November. That was February. Of course, then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in just September of 2020, he ensured that Amy Coney Barrett got through in just a matter of weeks. Of course, okay, he so argued that the, the, the sort of the political alignment of the chambers of, you know, the, the Congress and the presidency were different. I, I'm just saying what McConnell argued, that there were different circumstances in those two cases. That's exactly right. But the point is that he he very effectively preserved that seat for Donald Trump back in 2016 and then made all the difference in the switch of uh, Justice Barrett for for Justice Ginsburg. So everyone knows who uh, Mitch McConnell is. People m- might be familiar also with Don McGahn because he was the White House counsel. Don McGahn had been long been active in efforts to diminish regulation uh, in the law, through the law and through regulatory agencies. And he signs on early to the Donald Trump uh, campaign in 2015 and 16, then becomes White House counsel. And his main mission, uh, as he was fighting off all sorts of investigations of Trump and the Mueller report, was to really get many, many judges in place throughout the lower courts and the Supreme Court. And he was very effective. Leonard Leo, a Federalist Society executive, the Federalist Society is a conservative group that started as a debating society, essentially, uh, in the early 1980s. It has grown into a financial powerhouse and a networking powerhouse. No Republican appointee can get on the Supreme Court and to most crucial seats on lower appellate courts. I'm just talking about uh, the Republican side without the seal of approval from the Federalist Society. That's how powerful it's gotten. And one last thing I I just want to add is that Don McGahn was sensitive to the claim that the uh, Trump administration had outsourced judicial selection to the Federalist Society. He fought it back by saying, no, it's actually been insourced. We are in the castle. We are all part of the Federalist Society and we are doing the judge picking in tandem because we we are it. So I hear you on that. One of the questions that came up as I was reading, and in fact, at one point you note in the book, you sort of give the count of what each president has been able to do and sort of 
appointing Supreme Court justices, even noting that, you know, Donald Trump in one term got three, uh, Jimmy Carter in one term got none. Don't all presidents to some extent make sure that they pick, you know, court justices who are going to be politically aligned with their values and their policy positions? Is it necessarily extraordinary or some kind of This is my word, not yours. I acknowledge plot among a group of people to to put a particular type of justice on a court. Uh, no, and I really, I really do take your point. They were just so darn good at it, and and they wanted real consistency. Let's just think about um, uh, earlier Republican years. And George H. W. Bush is perfect. He chooses Clarence Thomas, who is certainly consistent to uh, Republican and even far right Republican views. But he also chose uh, David Souter, who ends up being more on the left. And a mantra that grew out of that appointment among the Federalist Society leaders was no more suitors. So what's happened is that there's been a more rigid consistency and frankly, effectiveness. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that you acknowledge that, you know, words like plot and conspiracy are not quite words that I, I really use either. It's that they've been so darn effective about it. And then when you think of uh, President Clinton, you know, choosing Stephen Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer is, was no far lefty at all. But what's happened over time is that the Republicans have really wanted much more, uh, I guess, purity in their, in their appointees so that if, if they choose them to carry out some mission, as Donald Trump said, I'm going to choose only uh, jurists who will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and return the matter to the states. That's what he got. He said he in all three of those cases, uh, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett voted to overturn Roe. So, Joan Biskupic, I'm going to jump ahead now to the moment where this was very striking to me in the book, where how good they were at it had this turning point that that really (laughs) created a thud factor, if you will, for the court. And this is in the creation of the supermajority with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett. And I'm going to set it up with a couple of pieces of sound. So first, in 2017... Coney Barrett, she's nominated for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 7th District. During her confirmation hearings, the role of religion in American civil life is an important topic. And Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein expresses concern that Barrett's deep and very conservative faith might actually get in the way of the law. Dogma and law are two different things. And I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in your case, Professor, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. So now, just before that... Amy Coney Barrett had reassured the Senate Judiciary Committee that Roe versus Wade, and you've already brought up that that was undone last year, uh, and related rulings protecting women's access to abortion were settled law. Roe and Casey and its progeny, as you say, Roe has been affirmed many times and survived many challenges in the court. And it's more than 40 years old, and it's clearly binding um, on all courts of appeals. And so it's not open to me or up to me, and I would would have no interest in, as a court of appeals judge, challenging that precedent. It would bind. I I bring these two pieces of sound to you, Joan, because there is this worry of lack of constraint 
from Dianne Feinstein. And there is Amy Coney Barrett in a previous confirmation saying, no, there is constraint here. And yet you talk about once we reach a supermajority of the type of justice that the Federalist Society wants to see on the court, you talk about a release of constraint that we begin to see in the rulings of this court. You know, that's absolutely right. And just to give our listeners a little bit more color to that scene between Dianne Feinstein and um, Amy Coney Barrett, right behind her was Don McGahn sitting there. And he didn't show up for uh, many appeals court hearing uh, nomination hearings, but for her, he did. And, and he was he, no longer in the administration at that point, correct? By the t- uh, During the appeals court one, he was. Oh, Tiziana, that's right. But then Thank when you. she gets to, when she gets to, he, he positioned her so that you're exactly right. By the time 2020 rolls around, he's no longer in that job, but his person is ready to be that's elevated. Um, so, so you're, you're making some good points about the a, a jurist feeling released when she gets to the the Supreme Court and perhaps emboldened by the supermajority, both of which things are true. You notice in that first clip, she stressed as a court of appeals judge, I would not uh, challenge Roe v. Wade. But once she became a Supreme Court justice, she obviously was ready to roll back precedent, despite what she had said in both of those hearings. In her Supreme Court hearing, she was more ambiguous, although she she did suggest, as as one does during those hearings, uh, very minimal uh, minimal interest in changing anything in the law. But what happened, and the reason I stress the fact that they had six on the right as opposed to five is that they could lose one and they lost uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. Chief Justice John Roberts back in uh, 2022 was ready to uphold the Mississippi ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy, but he did not want to roll back nearly a half century of abortion rights. He tried very hard to get the at least one or two more justices to come over to his side so that they wouldn't have done something so startling as overturn Roe v. Wade, a question that wasn't even directly before them in the Mississippi case. But Justice Barrett had no problem voting that way. Neither did uh, Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh. And in the minute we have left before we take a break, Joan, that weakening of Roberts's role as chief justice, it feels like comes back into play with things like enforcement of ethics preferences with an associate justice like Clarence Thomas now. That's exactly right. He has a weaker hand both for cases and for the the, the, as I said, the off-bench behavior of the justices, what kinds of codes and norms will apply to them as they try to maintain or regain their stature in the American eye? And do you think there's anything he can do about that? I still think he is a very persuasive individual, and I do think the pressure from the outside, from members of Congress, from watchdog groups, from the increased media scrutiny, could lead them to finally at least adopt a, a, a code of ethics that would be comparable to what lower court judges are bound by. So uh, we're going to come back in just a minute, Joan Biskupic. And when we do, I want to give you a heads up. What I want to start to focus on is your book now lays out for us a sense of how we got to the moment we're in. And we're in an interesting moment, which you laid out for us at the beginning. I think the question now becomes, What's the moment we're looking towards and what do you think is going to come of it? So let me ask you to set your head for that and stand by. We are taking a deep and really well-informed look at the inner workings of the Supreme Court with CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Excuse me. After the break, we'll do that. 
We'll take a look at how this new court may impact the country in the years to come. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. On Monday, we are bringing back a guest from our special series, The Power of Populism, to talk more about how economic and cultural insecurity can lead to a disenchantment with democracy. And we want to hear from you. What economic or cultural changes in our society have made you feel insecure about your own place in the world? How have you handled that insecurity? Is there a leader or a politician who resonated with you because they spoke to that feeling? Share your experience by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. Now, if that's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Or you can leave us a voicemail. That phone number is 617-353-0683. Again, 617-353-0683. That's for Monday. Let's come back to today, where Joan Biskupic is our guest. She is Senior Supreme Court Analyst for CNN and the author of four Profiles of Supreme Court Justices. Her latest book is called Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Dive into the Right and Its Historic Consequences. And we've already talked, Joan, about my sense as I was reading the book that it's like a 330-page I told you so (laughs) for the moment that we find ourselves in. There was one question I wanted to ask about implications. We'll start here because that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at some implications of this court. I find myself thinking about the people out there who have criticized this court on the question of race, rolling back things like voting rights um, and and arguing that this is a court that is taking white supremacist uh, positions. Um, I don't see that piece in your book. And I wonder your reaction to those criticisms of this court. Sure. Uh, just t- two things. First, you know, it's interesting you use the phrase, I told you so. I I didn't even know what I was seeing at times. I uh, signed the contract for this book in late uh, 2019, early 2020, as you know, when I was doing the outline. And I had no idea we were going to see the end of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. But when I when I got to the end and I was doing the Dobbs case and going back to see what would have to be rewritten. Nothing had to be rewritten. You were exactly right. I somehow saw it coming and 
walked the reader and, frankly, the author up to that point <laughs> without even knowing that all those pieces had been laid that way. So you're right. I mean, the, the arc of the whole book leads to where we, we are today, even though I, di I didn't quite believe it would happen this way. I had, frankly, more faith in the chief as a very persuasive force. But that helps me segue to your question about race. I do talk about the obliteration of voting rights in this book. You do. Um, the end of uh, racial remedies and the contraction of the 1965 Landmark Voting Rights Act is so much a part of John Roberts' agenda that I did a lot with that in my book on the chief, you know, using Shelby County versus uh uh, the, the Shelby County versus Holder decision uh, in which they uh, really uh, curtailed the reach of the Voting Rights Act. And now, of course, we've got the Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action disputes up there. That is a major part of what the Roberts Court has done. We saw a reinforcement of that with the new Trump appoint appointees and during the Trump era, but it wasn't as much of a story as some of the co the core culture war, abortion, LGBTQ issues were. So I, I do feel like I I, I show you where um, there was a continuation of the theme from the Shelby County case that was a two thir 2013 case, and certainly. Justice Ginsburg's dissent in that case was made what made her the notorious RBG. But it's almost like that chapter had been completed already by John Roberts and the court. And now it's just subsequent pieces of that, as opposed to the real groundbreaking difference that we have with women's reproductive rights. And I'll just flag for listeners who are interested in that book. That's called The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. So let's look at a couple of other pieces of implication. And I'm going to play some sound for you here as well. So when the Dobbs decision came down, overturning Roe versus Wade, there was a lot of negative reaction, not only in this country, but also from foreign leaders. And uh, Associate Justice Samuel Alito, who wrote the Dobbs opinion, gave a speech soon after in Rome for the Notre Dame Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative. And he talked about that international reaction. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders. <laughs> but what really wounded me, what really wounded me was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the <laughs> United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. What I want to focus on there, Joan, is sort of the tone the chuckling, and the lack of concern of disruption um, that comes from the, 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 the size and the nature of the reversal. Because as I was reading your book, as we get towards the end, right, it feels like the momentum is picking up um, on undoing, on the undoings, right, of previous, I know it's stare decisis, but these undoings and the lack of concern and... Uh, I, I got to be honest with you, it felt gleeful uh, in my reading of it. And I wonder what that means for us going forward, Joan. You know, that I like that word undoings. I 
don't think if we did a word search on my no. entire 400 <laughs> pages, it would come up. But but that's exactly the right word. You know, I've, I've, I've used similar ones. But undoings is exactly right. And there was, in uh, Justice Alito's tone there, he was mocking the detractors. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, some people have pointed out that I, I talk about how Justice Alito also sounds perpetually aggrieved and wants more and more and thinks that acts like he's losing. But frankly, that man is really winning. He is getting exactly what he wants from this court and from the law, pushing it and pushing it. And, you know, in, in terms of your question of what's what's next, uh, a line that starts this whole book, you know, just on a, a early, early page is the line from the three dissenters in the Dobbs ruling. Uh, no one should be confident that this majority is finished with its work. And I know that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, both still just in their 70s, which is relatively young for, for justices, feel a real sense of urgency to move ahead, to do more, to pr- roll back other um other rights to try to get, uh, you know, I was going to say to try to uh, get judges out of out of policy issues, but it's almost the opposite now. You know, a, a true conservative used to be a, a judge who felt like uh, policy decisions should be left to lawmakers. But now what we have and exhibit A is Matthew Kaczmarek down in Texas it, uh, are judges who uh, want to be part of policy and are making decisions on policy. So the question is, what would be next? And uh, I uh, just briefly mentioned the racial affirmative action cases that have come from Harvard and the University of North Carolina. I think they have an easy majority to really roll back the constitutional protection for universities to say they want to take race into account just to get a diverse student body, not for quotas, but to try to add some racial diversity to their campuses. And that's a principle that dates to 1978, the Bakke case, and was reaffirmed by this the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court, the, uh, the Supreme Court in 2003 with the University of Michigan case. So that's one area. And then another area that was raised, frankly, by the dissenters uh, to the Dobbs ruling and to one of the five justices in the majority, Clarence Thomas, is will the justices take the Dobbs ruling and use it to roll back for example, protection for uh, same-sex marriage. Justice Alito addressed that in his majority opinion, saying, no, 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 this is just about abortion. Abortion is different because it involves fetal life. But you have... Uh, you know, you have the dissenters and one of the justices in the majority saying we should go further. And that was Justice Thomas, I believe, wasn't it? It was. It was exactly right. So and I I want to note on this undoing, there will be listeners who will say, listen, it is my deeply held belief that this undoing needs to happen. So I want to I want to acknowledge that and say, I think the next question is. A massive undoing is destabilizing regardless. Is there history with the court in recognizing that destabilization? You know, 1930s, the courts push back heavily on FDR. He eventually says, I'm going to come after the court. The court stops doing it. Uh, Post-Brown versus Board of Education, uh, a couple of southern states push back so heavily that they flat out refuse to integrate schools even after the courts say that it is the law of the land. If there is a huge undoing, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, what are the implications for that much change that fast in a democratic society that, as you have noted in your own articles, increasingly holds the court in sort of less than um, 
dearness. <laughs> you know, trust the court less and less. Uh, yes. Uh, two points. First, I agree with you that we need to acknowledge that many people in America are very happy with this court. Uh, Donald Trump effectively ran on the Supreme Court saying that he was going to fill uh, the seat opened by the death of Antonin Scalia with a certain kind of jurist. And he has completely come through on his promise. And many Republicans are really high on what he has done and very approving of where the Supreme Court is right now. And I think it is important for us to acknowledge that because, uh, you know, the, the supermajority is kind of riding on that the approval from their base, so to speak. But what are the consequences? The consequences is how people then see the court as being politically energized in some way. And that's what we've been seeing in public opinion polls. It's not just that progressives, liberals are saying we don't like this court. A range of, you know, a range of opinion that includes people in the middle and some people on the right are now seeing the, the court in a much more political vein. And that's that goes against the idea of the Supreme Court as made up of, you know, neutral judges, just exactly what uh, John Roberts tried to uh, include in his statement, pushing back on Donald Trump and the Obama judges versus Trump judges. And, you know, remember, these people are appointed for life, which is why probably nothing will happen in the aftermath of complaints about Clarence Thomas. These people are appointed for life. They are supposed to be looking at cases and controversies through a lens that does not have to do with who appointed them. I imagine you just said nothing will probably happen with Clarence Thomas. And yet I feel like you have just laid out another envelope around that controversy, right? Because uh, Harlan Crow is a known Republican activist, a known Republican donor uh, with strong association with people like Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, active in other Republican issues. And it lends weight to this concern about the politicization of the court that can be further destabilizing at a time when our democracy feels like it might be on wobbly legs. That's right. But then the question is, who does something about it? The chief justice's hands are his hands are tied. He he has just one vote, and uh, as uh, he's not the boss of them, you know, <laughs> as children would say, uh, you know, he is not the boss of them, and they remind him of that in many ways <laughs> during the course of of their deliberations on on all things. Okay, so then there's this judicial conference that's the policy making arm of the federal judiciary. It's not going to do anything. In fact, the judicial conference is essentially an entity that buys into the idea of as little disclosure and explanation as possible. It's a group made up of judges. And then finally, you know, what about Congress? Now, there, there's really mixed sentiment in, Cong in Congress. You, you've heard from people like um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who has been really riding the, the issue of judicial judicial ethics and Supreme Court disclosures. And, uh, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin has has adopted some of that talk, but I, I just don't see them doing anything serious in terms of, um, you know, trying to amend any laws or put any real pressure on the court. And I have to say, there's there's this other issue of separation of powers. So I think it's something that makes them a little bit skittish. And frankly, right now, the Senate Judiciary Committee is more trying to get, get Biden judges confirmed, which is a very important priority for them, that I think this is this 
this issue with Clarence Thomas makes for a lot of rhetoric, but will it make for any change or any new pressure on the Supreme Court? I'm just not sure. So um, I'm going to pull one more thread with about 60 seconds left to sure. do it, Joan. And that is this this court and favorability towards public practice of Christianity. Just, you know, your couple of headline thoughts there. Oh, that is exactly it, Tiziana. Religious conservatives have been faring so well at the Supreme Court, and we even had a case this week that would play into that. Just to remind everyone, remember they sided six to three with a football coach uh, at a public school who wanted to play, uh, who wanted to pray at midfield, uh, often with with players around him. Uh, they said that was absolutely fine. That did not uh, breach any kind of separation of church and state. Even though the school district was like, we don't want this. And then they also last year. Uh, ordered uh, Maine to provide public funding to a religious school. Uh, They have a new case before them involving when uh, workers would uh, want to claim religious discrimination when an employer does not accommodate their schedule. For example, it's a a mail carrier who didn't want to work on Sunday, and there are all sorts of issues in terms of balancing the needs of an employer and also co-workers who would have to pick up the uh, parts of the individual shift. So, But the theme among all these cases, and we have had many, has been that uh, the religious conservative interests uh, prevail. And uh, I think Justice Alito is at the forefront of feeling as if religion is really under siege in America and wanting to counteract that. All right. uh, Sort of last sentence for you, Joan Biskupic of CNN. What are you most watching for in the next few weeks? Okay. First of all, in the next next few days, we will all see how they handle part one of the debate over uh, abortion medication. Then we will see how they rule on another Uh, dispute over the 1965 Voting Rights Act. There's a case from Alabama that's very important. Then by June, we'll see what they've done to racial affirmative action on campus. I do not anticipate, Tiziana, any retirements. So it's all going to be in the cases in the next couple months and years. All right. Joan Biskupic of CNN, author of Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Dive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for being so engaged with this book. You can find an excerpt at onpointradio.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point.